Thank you. Uh, Let's now turn in our Bibles to the 30th Psalm. The 30th Psalm. This past week, particularly after some of the events that happened in Nashville, Tennessee, these were things that were uh, particularly on my mind and, you know, just thinking through the psalm and and uh, hearing how, you know, how the Lord used it in my life. I don't know anybody personally at that church, but I do know many who do and um, uh, sometimes putting putting the, reading the scriptures and meditating on them and seeing how the Lord ministers to it in people's lives from that is, is, is special enough. But let's look at Psalm 30, and we'll read the whole psalm. A psalm, of, a psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me up out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm, but when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will they proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Since the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you now for this again, for again, for this time. We thank you, Father, for your word, that you have given it to us by inspiration of your spirit. And I pray that your spirit will now work through the word to help us hear your voice, the voice of the good shepherd. Now, Father, let the words of our mouths and meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, pain and suffering are realities in the world, and that's not missed upon any Christian, that pain and suffering happens quite a bit. And even after this last week at the tragic events affecting our brothers and sisters in Nashville, it's certainly not missed upon us. That's, again, how this sermon arose in my own heart. And when things happen we like this happen, we often have a great difficulty seeing the reality of joy in the midst of suffering. And oftentimes when these events happen, we struggle to process those realities of suffering and joy. In fact, atheists will often charge to Christian pastors and theologians when stuff happens like this, they, they ask the question, if God is so good, then why does he allow for pain and suffering? Certainly we know that the, that the Bible's answer is sin, and yet it doesn't always make it very easy to wrap our minds around these questions. This sort of dilemma of the problem of evil 
is, that they bring up is one that the Bible consistently answers time and again. And at least in one way, as one Christian pastor mentioned to us a little while ago, about a year ago when he preached on this point, that it's normal and it's to be expected. And that at all times, the Lord still, we still know that the Lord loves us even through it and is sustaining us. But what happens when these things happen? Does the normality and expectation of suffering make that reality become numb and create apathy? Does the present suffering in this world turn us to thanksgiving and joy to still strive after his goodness? Or does it cause us to cry out and shake our fists at heaven and say, why? Now this text does answer a lot of those questions, particularly in David's life. The background for this psalm comes with the fact that this is later in David's life. And if you think back to anything in David's life, what what do you remember most? Perhaps the fact that he was anointed as a shepherd boy in Judah. Perhaps you might even remember his sin with Bathsheba. The effects of that on his own life in the household with Absalom, his son, trying, trying to run amok. And in all of those cases, you see how his own sin affects his own life, his family, and the like. And how sin does have those grievous realities on us, whether it's personal or whether it's natural. And yet at the same time, this psalm teaches us something we have to remember and we have to know even as we go through those things in our own lives. And that is that we know the Lord's joy best when we've suffered the most. We know the Lord's joy best when we've suffered the most. And we'll see that idea in three ways. Beginning first in verses 1 to 5, we'll see that suffering has us consider joyous deliverance. Second, in verses 6 to 10, suffering will bring us low. And then third, suffering does not last forever. Verses 11 to 12. So it has us consider joyous deliverance. It will bring us low, but it doesn't last forever. Look at verses 1 to 3 again, because as we consider this joyous deliverance, it says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths, And did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. He's considering here this sort of individual joy. Beginning in verse 1 with an exaltation of God's praise. He's not under any inkling of an eye that this is coming at the end of a great deal of suffering. Again, as I mentioned, this is coming at the end of David's life. And he's able to look back at it. He's able to look back at his past and be able to see how it is that the Lord has lifted him up from the depths that where he has not let his enemies have the final word. In fact, the psalmist says in in other places, he says, you know, why is it that the wicked prevail and it seems that the good always suffer? And yet at the same time, David looks back and sees how the Lord has lifted him out of the depths. In fact, if you look at verse 1 where it says, for you lifted me out of the depths, the imagery that, you, that David's sort of giving us here is something of a, like, a, you know, if you've ever seen those, uh, dam- those wells where they used to have the, the bucket, you would roll it down into the well to pull up the water. That's sort of how he's describing it here with King Dave, uh, with the Lord delivering King David. It's like he's reaching down, as it were, into the depths of his despair and pulling him back up again. And he says, for that, Lord, I praise you. I exalt you for how you've done this in times past. Look again in verse 2. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. 
Not only is he recounting it in that way, but he's recounting it in multiple ways. He's saying how you brought me up from the realm of the dead. The dead, You spared me from going down to the pit. He's talking of how even in the midst of his great pain and his great suffering, how even when he's felt very close to death, where he's felt near to death, even in Psalm 23 where he says, I, I feel like even right now I'm going through that right now. You spared me from going down to far. And friends, let us ask the question then, do you remember those times in your own life where you felt you were in the same place? And have you not been able to sit back and consider and think of how the Lord himself has used those times in your life to draw you closer to himself? That's one of the reasons why David is praising God for this time. And it invites us, it even tells us rather, to consider how these things can, you can, uh, how the Lord used these things to turn our sorrow into joy. But not only that is it a, does it have us consider the individual joy, but it also sees us, has us see it in a corporate sense as well. Look at verses 4 to 5. He says, sing, praises, sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. He's calling us in verse 4 to see it not just simply as, a, as an individual matter, but as a but as a corporate matter, it's an imperative that he's calling them to praise. You know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is when I read in Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 15, where, the Lord, where Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, we mourn with those who mourn. Mourning and rejoicing are both corporate realities. The whole work of the Christian life is one of praising as well as lamenting. It's a family affair. That's why we can see things like what happened in this past week in Nashville as, is almost losing a family member, as it were, especially for those who actually did lose family members. But the reality is that this, isn't, that this is something that he's calling all people to, and he's reminding them for that because of what he says in verse 5, probably the most famous verse in this section that his anger lasts only a moment but his favor lasts a lifetime david's not under any any consideration any uh, false ideas here he knows as we'll see in verses six and seven that the reality of the misery in his life is his own sin and that he knows the sting of the lord's displeasure here he's he's speaking to his anger but he's speaking to it in such a way as that it will not last forever. We know sometimes that when the sting of the Lord's displeasure comes upon us, sometimes it might seem like it will never end. That the pain and misery of it that he, that he uses to chastise us will never seem to have a perfect and complete end. But David says in the reality of that, that it is still only for a moment. And that for those who love him, as, he, as Paul says in Romans 8, for all things work together for good, who, for good who love God, that he can say that his favor, his covenant favor, lasts a lifetime. Quite literally in, in Hebrew it says his favor lasts for life. The Lord's favor and his acceptance of his people comes perfectly and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ such that if you are in Christ, you can never lose that favor even if that means we are chastised for our sin. But the reality of the situation still comes that David still believes and he feels as though that his tears are nothing but food 
that, his, that the anger of the Lord lasts for a while, that even as he's going through weeping at night, sometimes he doesn't always see that the joy will come in the morning. I just ask you, have you ever felt that way before yourself? Have you ever felt because of a decision you've made or you've seen others make that it causes the same sort of inner anguish in your own heart and soul as well? Remember that David is speaking this from the other side of that turmoil. But that the Lord, but the, the promises the Lord gives is that even while those tears may not always seem to go away, or his anger for you, your sin is too hot, he re, he's reminding us that for those who love God, all things will work together. And the reason we can point to the Lord's favor and goodness even in the longest of nights is because of Christ. We can point to Christ as an example that those tears will one day dry up, that the nights do turn into mourning, that his anger does turn into favor because of his work on the cross. And we are accepted by the Father because of Christ's finished work, because in glory there will be no more crying tears or pain, for those former things will have passed away. And the second reality that we have to see here is not just looking forward to those days, but even that suffering will still bring us low. And recollecting here in verses 6 to 10 how the Lord has delivered him, there, will, there were times in David's life where he felt that the Lord had abandoned him. Look at verses 6 and look at verse 7. He says the reason why. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. What's he saying there? David is recognizing the reality of his own sin. He's recognizing here at a very important level that the reason why he's in this situation is because he trusted himself. He trusted his own power. He trusted his own kingdom. That because of all of these things that the Lord has given him, freely of his own goodness and grace, that those things were what was going to secure him. David had a misplaced confidence and quite oftentimes we have that misplaced confidence too. Which when tragedy strikes makes it all the more difficult to wrap our minds around who is the true and good God. Who has redeemed us from the pit. Who has not let you go too far down. You've often heard, maybe heard the statement before, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create Weak men and weak men create hard times. Certainly this is a reference to, to history and how that manifests itself. But when applied to the Christian, we can say hard times produces endurance. Endurance produces character and hope. Character and hope helps us to look to Christ. But we don't always keep looking up. And this happens when we have that misplaced confidence in who it is that sustains us and strengthens us. And that misplaced Confidence leads David to say somewhat arrogantly, I will never be shaken. The Lord is not my foundation. We sing it every time, we sing it a lot. How firm a foundation. And David is saying, How firm is my foundation that I have built, not the foundation that the Lord has made. But note here in verse 7 what David's response to that. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. The reality is pointing him back to it was the Lord's doing, but at the same time, he's also wrestling with this reality that the Lord has hid his face and for that he was dismayed. 
Friends, the whole reality of the Christian life is one that is lived, as one of our professors says, Korem Deo, which means before the face of God. And essentially what that then means is that as we look in heaven and we look in the scriptures, we look at God's character, we see him as a holy, righteous, and self-sufficient God, and we see us who are sinners. And it should prompt us then to see our need of that Savior and going to him through Christ. And yet so oftentimes when we don't, we are not living before the face of God. David says he, he, when he turns to his own devices and he sees that he has made the foundation for himself, he almost believes that it's as if the Lord has abandoned him. He says, I was dismayed when you hid your face. It's as if David or King David is saying, God, where did you go? Where did you go? First thing we need to learn here is that the reality is when tragedy strikes, there is nothing wrong with wrestling with God, but that such wrestling comes with the question, where did you go? And when you pray that, sometimes it's good to just let that sit there and wait to see the Lord work it out, but also to see that as, you know, Lord, where have I come down? And no doubt our brothers in Nashville have asked that same question, God, where did you go? Where did you go? One pastor in the Presbytery wrote in an article, he says, you know, they were doing their work when everything went down, and, and no doubt some were beginning to believe, God, where did you go? In fact, in the week, a couple weeks prior, the pastor of that church wrote uh, or preached a sermon where Jesus has gone to the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. And what was the first thing that Mary said to him when he got there? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does Jesus do? But when he goes to the tomb, he says, he says, show me where they lay. And when he went there, what did he do? He weeps. He weeps. Sin is so prevalent in this world, both personal and general, that sometimes it makes it difficult to see where God went or if he even understands what is happening. Yet in that instance and in this one, we have to recognize that it's not often that God has gone away. In fact, quite the opposite. When we are in our, our deepest of mourning, God hasn't gone away. In David's case, personally, David himself has turned away. But the reality is that even in the midst of such suffer, pain and suffering, he still draws near to his people. When we don't seem to get the answer, God, where did you go? And even though Jesus knew what he was going to do in that moment, he still comes down and weeps with his people. But in verses, verse 8, we also see that cry for mercy as well. Look again at verses 8, 9, and 10. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. He says this, What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faith, faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. It almost feels kind of blasphemous to be even able to ask those sorts of questions. He says, God, really, he's saying, God, what do you gain by me going through this? What are you gaining? Like, is anybody in the world going to, to praise you for that? I mean, think to our shorter catechism question. 
What does it say? What does the first one say? And I, I usually say that if a seminarian gets it wrong, he should fail seminary. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And David is saying, who's going to praise you? Who's going to glorify you if you let me go down to the pit? And the reality that he's, he's saying here, he's, it's essentially a cry for mercy. In verse 10 he says, Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, you are my help. He's beginning to turn away from his own foundation, which is shaky, which comes and goes, and looks to the one who has, is that firm foundation, my Savior, my God. So that when we ask ourselves the question, that natural question, what do you gain from my pain and suffering? And when we ask those questions, where did you go? They're not inappropriate questions to wrestle with. Because the psalmist is doing that here and now. A few years ago in a forum where Dr. Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, he was, rest, he was wrestling with a the uh, panel questioner on this question. He's like, you know, if, if you believe in such a good God and you believe in a God who is so merciful, loving, and gracious, why does he let all of these things happen? And, you know, whether you're ultimately satisfied with the answer or not, and he gave more to the answer than I'm going to give you, but he does say this. I can tell you at the outset what the answer isn't. And the answer isn't because of a lack of love on God's part. It isn't because of a lack of love on God's part. Remember, we said it, Romans 8. He works, to get, works good together for all those who love him, but even still, even in what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7 to 10, suffering can be used to reveal sin in our hearts and how much more we need God even in those moments of great pain. You know, whatever the thorn in the flesh was, and it's never defined, but for Paul it was used to subdue his pride. For you, for me, it could be anything else. And yet the reality is that the Lord uses pain and suffering in our lives, not so much to, 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 squash, not to squash his people, but to show us who truly is the all-sufficient Savior. For third and finally, not only do we see the, the, the things that suffering will bring us low, but we also know that it will not last forever. Verse 11, he says, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Verse 12, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silenced. Lord, my God, I will praise you. Final thing we learn here is that it will not last forever. We see a return. We see a restoration of that joy in, for David again by verse, verse 11. It reminds us how even in the end, the Lord restores joy to his people and brings them back to a place of praise. Because I can almost guarantee you, what, where is the last place you want to be when, you are going through a lot of, when you're going through a lot of misery in life and you think it's God's fault? The last place you'll want to go is here. And yet, as we've learned, it's not just individual, it's also corporate. This is the place where we are supposed to be and that the Lord will has turned that wailing into dancing. And not only that, he's re removed the clothing and sadness and he's replaced it with joy. He, he, uses, he takes the sackcloth and clothes them with it. Uh, if you know anything about it, you've been to, um, if you've ever been to Five Guys, for example, you've seen how they have those knapsacks and 
uh, housing the uh, potatoes. That's sort of that's the sort of fabric that they would use to put on the sackcloth whenever they were in a strange period of mourning. But the Lord says he's taken all of that away. And not only does he remove the sadness and anguish, replacing it with joy, he moves our hearts to pray so that when we're like, why is all this happening? For David, he's saying how even the Lord has worked in his own heart and removed the pain for his worship is that he's glad again to be in the full joy, to sing again, and it cannot be silenced. That's why he's saying, I will praise you forevermore. And the important lesson we learn here is that, again, that suffering does not last forever. And that should drive us to thanksgiving. The difficulty, however, is seeing that in the midst of the suffering. And remember that David is speaking of this well after the fact, whatever it may have been and whatever it may have happened. This last week when the pastor finally gave his news conference, even when things had reached fever pitch, he says this. His own daughter had been, had been lost in the shooting. Through the tears, we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her, again, her to life again. And the joy we have as Christians is knowing that that will not last forever. Because our hope is looking forward to that day where, as it says in Revelation, there will be no more crying, tears, or pain. And it's in that that we know the Lord's joy best when we've suffered the most. That we'll know the joyous deliverance from being brought low to knowing suffering will not last forever. And so while whatever we may be going through now or struggling with even on how to process these events, we should take time to acknowledge the pain and just let it be. But know that even as you're questioning the Lord, why, where'd you go, what do you gain, that he will turn that joy into mourning because he is our covenant Lord who will neither leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you will, whatever any of us may be going through here tonight, that you will turn that joy into mourning. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to see Christ more clearly and to praise him forevermore. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn 261. What wondrous love is this, hymn 261. We'll sing verses 1 and 3. Verses 1 and 3 of hymn 261. Stand with me as we sing.